I met Stephen Bussey for the very first time when he was 11 years old. I was a senior in college, uh, completing my student teaching assignment at a local middle school, and Stephen was a really apathetic and really bad beginning trumpet player in my band class. Stephen wore dark, baggy clothes all the time. Um, His hair was long, and he deliberately let it hang over his eyes so that you couldn't really see what he was thinking, or even if he was thinking for that matter. Um, Stephen was never a disruption in my class. Uh, He was always quiet. He was just completely disinterested and disengaged. His family also, by the providence of God, happened to worship at the church that I was attending. And um, that year, Stephen was placed in the middle school boys' small group that I was leading at church. And I found Stephen to be just as disengaged and just as disinterested when it came to our small group as he was when it came to the trumpet. If memory serves, um, Stephen was the youngest of five children, and and the youngest by a considerable margin. All of his siblings were much older than he was, and so as a result of that, his parents were also older, and they were tired, right? They had already raised four adult children. Some of those adult children uh, were a little bit troubled, if I remember correctly, and so um, Stephen's parents were content if he just stayed in his room and didn't bother them. He flew under the radar at home, and as a result, he spent most of his free time playing video games. Actually, all of his free time playing video games. That seemed to be the one and only thing that Stephen really, truly cared about. Now, in the Lord's kindness, um, I was able to build a relationship with Stephen. I made headway, I think, mostly because I was one of the few adults in his life who genuinely cared about him, and I wanted him to know that I genuinely cared about him. I made sure that he knew that, in fact. And before long, Stephen, he, he warmed to me and to our relationship. He started to arrive at school a little bit early, and when he got to school, he would come to the band classroom and, and hang out there because some of the time I was there. And then after school also, he would come to the band classroom and hang out there and, and wait until his ride came to pick him up because there was an opportunity for us to just talk a little bit. And then Stephen even started to show some interest in our small group on Sunday mornings. He started to come with questions every week. What does this verse mean? Or what does God say about that? Or how come the Bible says this? And at the time, I was a relatively new Christian myself. I often did not know the answers to the questions that Stephen asked me, but I knew people who knew those answers. And so I would take notes faithfully, and then I would go to my pastors, and I would ask them the answers to Stephen's questions and and go back to him. And that's just what we did, right, off and on for much of that year. That's how our relationship really started to grow. Well, one day, Stephen, he came in and he said, Sharpie, I've got a question. Now, just to be clear, Stephen couldn't call me Sharpie at school. I was Mr. Sharp there. But at church, he called me Sharpie, just like all the other students in the youth group did. He said, Sharpie, I've got a question. What is heaven going to be like? And I looked at him and I said, Stephen, there's really a lot that we don't know about what heaven will be like. But we do know that Jesus will be there, and we do know that we will worship him forever, as we would want to right now if we could see him as he truly is. That's what I said to Stephen. And Stephen thought about that answer for a minute, and then he said, so it's going to be like one big, long church service? And I could see his wheels turning, and he said, 
I think I'd really rather just stay here and play video games. Now, I don't remember exactly what happened next after Stephen said that. Maybe one of the other middle school boys in the group like kicked his neighbor or told a fart joke or something that middle school boys do. I do remember that I was distracted and that my attention being diverted, like I never made it back to Stephen that day. And unfortunately, that was really the end of the conversation. Unimpressed as he was by a vision of eternity without his beloved video games, Stephen stopped coming to our small group. He started frequenting the band room less and less. I graduated from college that spring, and once I was clearly no longer his teacher, I felt like it was safe for me to like, try to reach out to him and connect with him again, and so he never responded to any of my answering machine messages. This was 20 years ago, by the way, if you're under the age of 20, an answering machine was this little box that you connected to your house phone so that if somebody called you while you weren't home, they could leave you a message. A house phone was this thing that had this wire that connected to the wall. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I jest. Stephen, he stopped coming. He didn't respond to any of my messages. We lost touch. Because at the time, at least, he preferred playing video games to the idea of an eternal church service in heaven. Can you blame him? I remember uh, as a young kid watching the cartoon Tom and Jerry on Saturday mornings. Anybody remember Tom and Jerry? Yep, a few of us, that's right. Tom the cat and Jerry the mouse, they were locked in this mortal blood feud every episode, right? Tom was desperate to catch and to eat Jerry but Jerry always outsmarted Tom. And every time that happened, the result was Tom's untimely death. And then after his real demise, spirit Tom, right? He would like float up into this ethereal place where there were all of these angels sitting on clouds playing harps all the time. And I think it's probably that kind of vision of heaven that Stephen was rejecting. The saints and the angels sitting around playing chamber music during a church service that goes on literally forever. And if we're honest, like, we can easily have that impression, can't we? Even, even the great hymn writers will add to it from time to time. I mean, this is one verse from the most famous hymn ever written. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I mean, doesn't this notion of a song service that lasts for eternity seem a little bit mortifying if we're really honest? Are we really going to pluck harps and sit on white clouds in perfect contentment for the equivalent of trillions and trillions of years? Is that really what heaven is gonna be like? Is that really what is promised to the saints who are in Christ Jesus when Jesus comes again? Now, before we answer those questions, Let's think for a minute about why the answer to those questions matters so much. Every single one of us, whether we realize it or not, we're all driven by our hope for the future. We're driven in life by what we believe to be true about what is to come. And so, for example, if you kill yourself at work, right? I mean, if you slave away at work, working 60 hours a week, 
right? It's because you have this vision of the future in which all of that elbow grease is paid off. Maybe that means you've climbed the corporate ladder. Maybe that means you've just earned enough to retire early, whatever. I don't know, but you believe something about the future that leads you to work and to just work yourself into the ground. If you kill your body at the gym every day of the week and eat nothing but kale, right? It's because you have this vision of the future in which you're like ripped and healthy and in shape. And that vision of the future is driving you forward. If you spend every free moment of your life driving your kids from activity to activity to activity, gymnastics on Monday, art class on Tuesday, basket weaving on Wednesday, whatever it is, right? It's, you do that because you have this vision of your children's future. You want them to be successful and well-rounded. You want them to get into a good college or get a good scholarship or something like that. And in the end, everything that you do and everything that I do, we do those things because of what we desire and what we believe to be true about the future. Right? It's our vision of the future that, that moves us forward and animates us in life. Which is why when the Apostles' Creed ends by confessing that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, we're dealing with one of the most critical realities in our lives. Right? If this world is all there is, if there's death and then nothing, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And if there is a heaven, but it's nothing more than like a monotonous, centuries-long version of what we've been doing together this morning, well then, frankly, you'd better find something that's worth living for today, right? You'd better make yourself heaven on earth today, because that's not anything that would excite us. But if there is a future for the people of God, that is marked by joy and delight and satisfaction, if there's a future that makes even the greatest pleasures in this life pale by comparison, then everything about the way we live our lives today needs to be oriented toward that future. That's what I hope to lay before you this morning. Let me tell you how we're going to get there. If you've been with us through this series in the Creed, you, you kind of know the outline by now. First, we're going to talk about how true belief in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting will shape our intellects. In other words, we're really just going to think about what do we need to know here. And in order to do that today, we're going to look at two passages. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The other is in Revelation chapter 21. You can go ahead and find those and hold on to them if you want to. We're going to spend a few minutes in 1 Corinthians 15, a few minutes in Revelation 21, just thinking about what do we need to know here intellectually. And then we're going to move to how those truths shape what we do. How does believing in these truths command our wills? And I'll give you two things to think about today. And then finally we'll end with how these truths transform our affections. So let's start in 1 Corinthians 15. What do we need to know about the resurrection of the body. Look in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 12. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says to the saints at the church in the ancient city of Corinth. Read with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, pause right there with me. 
the issue that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is, it is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this chapter does say a whole lot about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And maybe you've been to a church gathering on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and 1 Corinthians 15 has been the text that that morning has been gathered around. I've preached from 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter Sunday before. That's a right and good thing to consider on the day that we really celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the main idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The main idea... 15 is the resurrection of everybody else, right? It's the resurrection of you and of me that Paul is like laying before the people in this church. Apparently, there were people either inside or outside the Corinthian church who said that there's no resurrection of the dead. That's why in verse 12, Paul asks that question. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, the reason Paul mentions the resurrection of Jesus in this chapter is because the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that the resurrection of everyone else is possible, right? If there's no resurrection of Jesus, then there's no resurrection of anyone else. But if Christ has been raised, and he has, Paul says that changes everything. Now, I want you to skip ahead to verse 20. What I'm doing here is I'm trying to summarize the argument of this entire chapter for us. So skip ahead to verse 20, and Paul continues. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's, he's pointing us to the two most significant human beings in all of history, right? Christians instinctively know that Jesus is the most significant human being in all of history, but we should recognize that, that Adam, in terms of his consequence for our lives, is right alongside Jesus in his significance. And by Adam, we mean the Adam of Adam and Eve fame, right? The Adam who took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, who ate that fruit even though he's rebelling against God and as a result of that was condemned to death and cast out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. What Paul's saying here is that just as Adam ate the fruit and through Adam, everyone has died, everyone has has. Uh, dealt with the, the consequence of sin, right? Death is a reality for everyone because of Adam's sin. In the same way, because Christ has risen from the dead, there is resurrection for those who are in Christ, right? He says, but in Christ, all shall be made alive. That's the resurrection of the dead. Paul, he's looking back at the resurrection of Jesus and he says, because Jesus rose from the grave, because Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, then all who are in Christ will be raised as well. The resurrection of Jesus, it proves that the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, your body and mine, it's real. And that's the main point that Paul makes in this chapter. But he goes on to say something more, something that is absolutely remarkable. And I want you to look at it. So skip ahead one more time now, all the way down to verse 51. Having argued that Jesus is raised and therefore we will be raised also, I want you to listen to what Paul tells us about the resurrection of our bodies. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now do you hear what Paul is saying about being changed? He says we shall not all sleep. That means that there will still be some people who are alive when Jesus returns at the last day. He says we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. What does Paul mean? Or he says the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. Here's what Paul means. Under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is promising us a glorious transformation of our physical resurrected bodies. In the resurrection of the body, our bodies will be like they are now, but they will also be unlike they are now. They will be physical, but they will be unstained by sin and the effects of sin. They will be glorious. Church, like I hope you know, you are never going to be an angel. Right? You, you hear that sometimes right? in popular theology. In fact, perhaps you've been to a funeral where the man officiating that funeral has said something like, well, so-and-so is a dear, beloved brother, um, but he's in a better place right now. We can just picture him playing golf among the angels. I'm giving you permission. If you hear that ever again, you have permission to rebuke that because biblically speaking, that's actually nonsense. The Bible tells us that angels look at us and they long to be us. What is in store for you? Your future, if you are in Christ, it is so much better than this merely spiritual being who has nothing better to do than sit on a cloud and play a harp and sing songs about God. The future for you involves a gloriously transformed, resurrected, body. Now in this life, there will come a day when your physical body, it revolts against you, right? Maybe you're there already, but you will wake up one morning in this life and you will realize that everything hurts. You will realize that your body has let you down and you will frankly be angry that you are still alive with a body that is failing you so seriously. Now a few of us here, we're still on the ascent, physically speaking, Most of us are at cruising altitude and there are a few of us who are already descending one bit. But the simple truth is that every one of us, unless the Lord comes again before we die, every one of us is going to crash and burn. Your physical body will one day make you wish that you were dead. But the resurrection of the body means that one day you will receive a gloriously transformed physical body. The mortal shall become immortal. The perishable shall become imperishable. And, oh, this is so sweet. Like what plagues you now will plague you no more. What ails you now, it will not ail you then. What hinders you now will not hinder you then. What grieves you now will not grieve you then. And so that struggle with sin that you've battled for years, church, that is perishable. And the resurrection of the dead, you will put on the imperishable and it will be no more. 
that physical affliction that you've suffered with for years, that is perishable. In the resurrection of the body, you will put on the imperishable and it will be no more. And you may have walked in here suffering greatly, or you may be at the end of your rope. You may be weighed down and grieving and broken, perhaps over your own sin, perhaps over the, just the circumstances of your life, over your failings, over your fears, over your doubts, over your anxieties. And if those things are true for you now, if they're not true for you now, they will be true for you one day. But if they're true for you now, I just want you to know, this is, this is what D.A. Carson says about all this. I love this. He says, there is nothing wrong with me that a good resurrection won't fix. And so whatever ails you now will be healed and made whole in the resurrection of the body. All of our ailments, all of our sorrows, they will be gone in the twinkling of an eye upon the day when we are raised from the dead. That's what the resurrection of the body means for you if you are in Christ. You won't be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. You'll be you, but better, gloriously better, because you will be free from every hint of corruption and every stain of sin. You will be you as you were meant to be. In fact, who you are right now, that's the shadow. Who you will be in the resurrection is the reality. But where will you go? Where will you be? That's why we need to think about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so now turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Someday, Lord willing, we will mine all of the riches of this passage that we are about to read. Today we're not going to do that. But I want to set your eyes on this because I want you to have a vision. And there is no better vision than this one. I want you to have a vision of what the life everlasting will look like. This is the vision that the Lord gave to the Apostle John when he was exiled on an island called Patmos. He saw this sight of the life everlasting. Revelation 20, let's start in verse one. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Now skip ahead to verse 22. John adds, he says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In other words, we no longer need to worship God through a temple because God himself is present among his people. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. In other words, we will see God so clearly and truly, his glory will be so radiant before us that it will shine even brighter than the sun itself might ever shine. The sun will be unnecessary. 
by its light, the glory of God's light, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The night is a symbol of darkness in the Bible. It's a symbol of evil. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now here's the the main thing that I hope you will take from this picture. This is such a sweeping promise, isn't it? I mean, it conveys such good news. All things new. Every tear wiped from every eye. Death shall be no more. No more mourning, nor pain, nor despair. The glory of the Lord shining upon this new heavens and new earth so brightly that there's no need for the sun. I mean, all of this is so sweet. But here's the main thing. Even if you don't realize it, that is what you are longing for. And that is what you were made for. Deep in your heart, so deep that perhaps you may not be able to feel it, this is what you desire. Your anxieties, they hint at it. Your fears, they're like arrows pointing to it. But your heart is made for this new heaven and this new earth. Your heart is made for the life everlasting and you will have no true rest until you are there. Here's how C.S. Lewis put this. I think this is the most famous thing that Lewis ever wrote. He said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. They never measure up. They never satisfy. And so he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The life everlasting That is the place, the only place that you were made for. It's the place, the only place where you will find everything that you long for in this life. Now there's much more that I could say here, but I think the best thing for me to do is to pivot and to talk about how believing these truths with true faith will shape what we do, how it will command our wills. And so in other words, what difference does all of this make for how we live our lives today? How does faith and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting change what we do? Let me point to two ways. First, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting will shape the way we view our suffering. And then secondly, they'll shape the way we view our sin. So our suffering and our sin. Let's do suffering first. Jesus told us that in this we would have trouble. Those troubles owe to sin, to our own sin, to the sins of others, to the broken world we live in. Our troubles they owe to our spiritual enemy, Satan, and sometimes our troubles owe simply to the hard providences of God. Some of our sorrows feel in the moment simply enormous. 
right? Our hopes and our dreams are shattered. Relationships are broken. Loved ones are lost. Some of our sorrows feel enormous, and I make no light of that. The Apostle Paul made no light of that, even when he described his own sorrows and sufferings. This is what he wrote about his own sorrows in 2 Corinthians. He said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now, the question we should ask as we read that is, like, how was Paul able to maintain this sort of hopeful and joy-filled understanding of his own sorrow and suffering? Afflicted, but not crushed, he said. Struck down, but not destroyed. How could Paul continue that way? Well, here's how. He goes on. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient it's like temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal here's where Paul's going he says because of what we believe about eternity because of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, because of those things, there will be a day when all of our sorrows seem to us like a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory we will experience in eternity. And so how does all of this help us to respond to suffering today? Well, it helps us because it teaches us to think about that day. We need to learn to look at our lives when we suffer from the perspective that we will have 10,000 years from now. We need to learn to look at our sorrows with the perspective that we will have 10,000 years from now. 10,000 years from now, these griefs and sorrows, they will seem like less than nothing compared to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so we need to learn to look at every moment today, especially when today is hard, with the perspective that we'll have 10,000 years from today. And so the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, it transforms completely how we think about and understand and respond to our suffering. And it even shapes the way we think about and respond to our sin. You see, we also need the 10,000 years from now perspective on our own sin. Because if we have that perspective, we'll realize just how idiotic it would be to throw away eternity in heaven for the sake of pleasure in this life that will last less than a millisecond by comparison to eternity. Now, I need to be careful here. Right? No one can obey their way into God's grace, which means that no one can disobey their way out of God's grace. Right? It's not like God has this list of really big sins, and if you commit one of those, he's just done with you. No, you can't earn your salvation by your obedience. Therefore, you cannot unearn your salvation by your disobedience. Do you understand that? But I'll tell you, as one of your pastors, that I have seen so many people make shipwreck of their lives and of their faith because in the end, they proved that they were never really saved because they were just way too casual about their sin. You see, our flesh, it's like a beast. 
If you starve that beast, it will be weak. And you can tame a weak beast. If you deny your flesh, your sinful desires, that beast will shrivel up, he will be weak, and you can master him. But if you feed that beast, it will grow, it will grow, it will grow, it will get stronger and stronger and stronger, and then you won't be able to tame it anymore, and it will be able to devour you. And so there, there have never, there, maybe never is too strong of a word, there have been very few men who have been faithful to their wives, never harboring lustful thoughts about other women, never considering leaving their wives, and then, boom, one day they wake up and decide to have an affair. Maybe that's happened, but that is very, very rare. What is less rare is the dude who harbors sinful thoughts and desires for months or years. He keeps them secret. He tells no one but he doesn't kill those desires. Instead, he coddles them. He feeds that beast. Right? He looks at porn online. He flirts with other women from time to time. And over time, the beast inside of him gets stronger and stronger. His flesh, it begins to devour him. And he does not realize it until it is too late. And he has ruined his life and potentially his hope of life everlasting. Church, we have to take the 10,000 years from now perspective on our sin. We have to kill it before it kills you. Harbor no small sinful thoughts. Rather, put them to death before they grow and grow and overpower you. Put them to death before they put you to death. Why would you risk your eternal soul on something that in light of eternity might offer you only a blink of an eye's worth of pleasure? Finally, how do these truths transform our affections? How do they shape or reshape what we love? Listen to what 1 John says. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Church, may the reality of eternity the reality of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, may that reality break the back of our love for the world and for the things of the world. The pleasures of this world, they are merely a shadow. The pleasures of eternity are the real thing. The pleasures of this world, they are fleeting. But the pleasures of eternity are forever. The pleasures of this world will always leave you longing for more. The pleasures of eternity will leave you full and satisfied forever. And so may we forsake our love for the world. And may we prayerfully cultivate a longing for and a love for the world to come. This world, it is not our home May we never expect it to feel like our home. And may we guard our hearts against the powerful temptation 
to feel at home on this side of the resurrection of the body. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would cultivate in us that love not for the world, but for the world to come. Put our mouths out of taste with our desires for the things of this world and cultivate in us a hunger for the world to come. And in light of that hunger, Lord, help us always to take the the 10,000 years from now perspective on our suffering and on our sin. May the eternal weight of glory that awaits those who are in Christ Jesus be so beautiful to us that we can endure sorrow and suffering on this day. And may the eternal weight of glory that awaits those who are in Christ Jesus help us to see how foolishly fleeting sin really is. May we long for the eternal pleasures forevermore that are ours with you at your right hand. And may we long for nothing else. We pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen.